morning, everyone. My name is Preston. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and it's a delight for me to welcome today uh, with us the Reverend Dr. Ross Lockhart. He's going to be our preacher for today. You can go ahead and grab a seat, by the way. Sorry about that. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're really delighted. He's the dean over at St. Andrew's Hall and teaches at VST and I think a couple other places around the UBC world. So anyways, um, he's a good friend and we're excited to have him here today. Now, I'm delighted that Ross is wearing a bow tie today. I'm from North Carolina, and lots yes. of people wear bow ties there, but not here. So please tell me, what, where did your fascination with bow ties come it's, from? It's so true. It is more kind of in the South people wear bow ties. Yeah. I teach my students uh, at the seminary that the first rule of ministry is dress to bless the Lord, and I, I haven't figured out the second rule yet. That's so all you need. <laughs> I'm, I'm, maybe today. Maybe I'll figure it out today. Maybe today will be the day. <laughs> yeah. And thanks for your warm welcome. It's great to be here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, will you join me in praying for Ross as he brings the word of the Lord today to us? Uh, living God, we come before you today and give you sincere thanks for the gift of your word. We also give you sincere thanks for Ross and his willingness to come and speak uh, to us from your holy scriptures. So we pray today for Ross. Will you bless him? Will you fill him uh, with the right words for today? Will you open up every ear and heart today to hear your words um, as you have ordained? And uh, we thank you again for Ross. Bless him today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Thank you so thank much. You Morning, church. It is great to be with you. And I know I'm kind of a, a stranger or a visitor uh, to you, but I have followed with great interest uh, St. Pete's over the years, uh, back from uh, when Roger was with you, and he was a student of ours at the seminary, and uh, Alistair and I get together regularly and talk all things church and preaching, so I'm kind of, think of me like that weird uncle who comes to visit from a distance. You don't really know who the weird uncle is, but you know that you're connected, as we're all part of the body of Christ. And may I say, before we dig into God's word, how great it is to be in a church building with people. This is remarkable, amen? But also huge hello and blessings to our friends online. We're in a transition time uh, for the church, and it feels good to be here with you in this space. Okay, so I don't know if you've had this happen, but this summer I was reclining in my little postage stamp backyard in our townhouse complex. I was lying out on COVID-purchased furniture. We got some nice new patio furniture. I was uh, reading a good book on theology. Yes, the stereotypes are true. I had my Spotify tuned in to the very best of country music. Because growing up on the prairies, I believe the soundtrack of heaven is country music. Amen? Okay, that's surprising. Okay, yeah, yeah, I expected, I expected that more. And I was sitting there with, um, this is church, so I'll simply say an adult beverage. And I was there relaxing when I heard my wife shout from inside our home. She said, they're here, get up. I thought, what? It's like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We're not entertaining. I was confused. And then she did it again, but this time she shouted, they're here, get up. And she was standing by the sliding glass door with a can of Raid. And I knew exactly what had happened. We live in North Van. I don't know where you are in the city. If you're in a high-rise condo, this is not your problem, but you may have seen it happen. At least once a summer, flying ants come out of nowhere. Like two minutes before you could look, and they're not there. And then when they're there, they're everywhere. Like some cheesy kind of like 
black and white uh, movie from uh, the 40s with World War II anti-aircraft guns going up. They're shooting out of the grass all of a sudden. They're crawling out of my little window well. They're even in the steps leading up to the patio. And I thought, we have a pest problem here. So I went to work um, baptizing them with raid, and the problem was solved. I don't know if you're going to believe me, but as I was searching scriptures, and, you know, Alistair said, hey, preach, whatever, we're in kind of open season in the summertime, pick your favorite text. Ephesians is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And as I was reading through and thinking, well, what might I preach from Ephesians? I landed on Ephesians 4, because I'm going to make the case, at least, that today in the church, we have a pest problem of our own but it's more theological in nature. Before we go there, let's get our head around Ephesians itself. Ephesus, of course, was a major place of Paul's ministry. It was an enormous city. We kind of forget this as we flip through scriptures. It was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. 250,000 people lived there. That's more than all of the North Shore combined. It was a big city for an ancient time. And it was famous for, of course, its uh, temple to Diana, the Roman goddess. And there were all kinds of uh, souvenir shops selling you little trinkets there. I've led multiple pilgrimage tours over the years to Turkey and Greece and Italy, as well as the Holy Land. And whenever we go to Ephesus, I'm surprised the temple of Diana is gone. There's one pillar left standing. But surprisingly, the gift shops are still there. Imagine that, right? And so Paul has his ministry here. He knows these people by name, and yet something strange happens. He doesn't address them at the beginning of this letter to the Ephesians like he does in so many letters where he says, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, all that kind of stuff. So some scholars have said, hmm, I wonder if Paul even wrote this letter. But I want to be easy on that. I I think Paul did. I think we're around the year 60 AD. He's imprisoned. He's imprisoned in Rome while he's writing this. He's likely also writing the letter to the Colossians at the same time. And here's one reason why it may be a, a little unusual at the beginning of this letter. This letter is known as a circular letter. Kind of fancy Bible scholars speak for what's going on here. Here's our equivalent today. Do you ever send a Christmas letter to anyone? Do you receive a Christmas letter? Now, most of us do it by email these days. But you know what you do in your Christmas letter? You write it once, and you tell everything good or bad that's happened to you that year. You uh, include an adorable picture of your baby or of your cat, right? And then you print them off somewhere, or you send them by email. But what do you do? You put a little personal Dear Uncle Frank in Halifax at the top, and you put a little something, hope to see you when I'm home next summer, right? That's kind of what this is. The people who would have carried this letter to the churches in Asia Minor, Turkey today, would have no doubt brought personal greetings, but they're not written down in the letter. So this is a letter to the church in Ephesus, the little house church, probably no more than folks gathered here in the church today, but it's also meant to be shared around, right? Shared with the church at Sardis, with Laodicea, with Philadelphia, and, and, and. And so what does this letter say? Well, the first three chapters that you can read at your leisure 
are incredible to read because so much of it is about what God has done for us. What has God done? God has chosen us. God has adopted us. God has redeemed us. God has poured out his wisdom on us. God has made us one family, and, and, and. It's such an encouraging letter to read. And then we slide into chapter 4. And it's not that we leave that behind, but there's something interesting that happens in chapter 4. The, alongside the indicative comes the imperative. So along with the what God is doing, there's the so what. In light of that, what should we do in response. And as we work our way through, the first stopping place of what we are called to attend to, if your scriptures are open or if your uh, Bible app is still humming, have a look before the reading we share today, the very start of Ephesians 4, it's all about unity. Not once, not twice, not even three times, seven times It talks about being one, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Here he's pouring out his hopes that our response to what God has done for us might be unity. But we all know human beings being human, that is a tough thing to achieve. Let's just take it out of the church for a moment And think in terms of uh, this summer we had uh, a special strata meeting in our townhouse complex so we all dutifully showed up with our lawn chairs and our drinks and we're like reviewing bylaws or something so we needed the lawyer there and he was going through and talking about all that we're going to address and then he said something delightful he said look he said if you've come here tonight thinking we're all going to agree on stuff like you might as well go home right now that never happens He said, I've been doing this for years, and as a strata lawyer, at some point, you're going to fight about three things. Well, he had my attention. He sounded like a preacher with three points, right? I thought, what is he going to say? He said, every strata fights about people, pets, and parking. Amen? I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. And what happened over the next two hours? We fought, nicely, about people, their behavior, pets, which ones we should have, and why there's not enough parking spots. It was amazing. Achieving unity on our own is impossible in so many ways. We know that because as Christians, we know we live in a fallen world. We're keenly aware, even as redeemed sinners, of the power of sin at work. And so it's not like Paul in Ephesians 4 is saying, unity is good. You should just go into the corner and achieve it. Look at what he says next. There's beautiful echoes in the Apostles' Creed, the ascending and descending here. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he goes into talking about the ascending and descending nature of the incarnation, the ministry, the suffering, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity, in other words, is not something we can achieve on our own. It, too, is a gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. So think about that. The next time you experience unity in the church, it wasn't our doing. It was a gift from Jesus himself. And just as we get all cozy in unity, it shifts again. There's like a trap door that opens and we fall in. And then it continues. It's not about unity now. It's about diversity. Did you catch that in the reading? We heard this already today. 
when we get into the gifts that Jesus gave, were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, shepherds, and some teachers. Just think about that range of diverse gifts that Christ gives the church. Think about how important in this moment, in a time and a place in Canadian society, where, I don't know about you, most of the people I bump into are in one of two categories. They're affable agnostic. Most people fall into that. You do that church thing, that's great. I'm going to go climb the chief this weekend or cycle Stanley Park. I hope I don't get bitten by a coyote. You know, that kind of thing. Or they're angry atheists. Oh, don't give me any of that church talk, that kind of thing. We need apostolic giftings. We need the ability to establish new ministries. I don't need to tell you that, St. Pete's. You're a church plant that's growing into maturity. And just think about all the ways in which God has revealed his magnificent power to you through this act of church planting over several years. But we also live in a time where we desperately need the church's prophetic voice. Think about what is on in our culture. Think about hashtag me too. Think about the discovery of the indigenous children in residential school graves. Think about the environmental crisis that is underway. Where is the church's voice? It is needed in this time and place. And then think about the evangelistic needs. How do we tell others about who Jesus Christ is in language that actually makes sense to them, right? In not just the culture, but in all of the subcultures of our world. Look, I've got two teenagers under my roof. I know something about subcultures I do not understand. But I am grateful that there are others who can translate the gospel into a language that makes sense to them. And then, of course, we need pastors. Of course, we need shepherds to care for the flock. And we need teachers, what in my Presbyterian tradition would be known as doctors of the church, to craft, to form doctrine in response to what the Holy Spirit is doing. Of course, we need that. Here's the thing. Alan Hirsch, great missiologist from Australia, years ago coined this little passage we're looking at today as a pest, as a pest, right? Think about it. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. And what he argued was that for us today in the contemporary West, we have lost the first three gifts that Christ gave us. We've lost the ape in a pest. Now, when I was thinking about that, reading Hirsch again in preparation for being with you today, I don't know why the Holy Spirit led me to think about my grandmother, who has long since departed to glory. Uh, she was born in 1912. I know you're doing the calculation. That makes me super old, right? If my grandma was born in 1912. And as a kid, I used to find, like, fun facts about the year she was born to entertain her, like the Titanic sunk grandma the year you were born. That didn't go over well. Uh, the Oreo cookie was invented the year you were born. She liked that more. My grandmother was a product of the Great Depression in the 1930s, a coming of age, and it marked her life forever. I won't call her a hoarder, but she was a saver, shall we say, right? Like, what about money? She had cans, like old cigar jar cans full of cash in her house in Winnipeg, because what if the banks failed? Before Costco was a thing, she had flats of cans everywhere. She was like running a little Costco out of her small house, because what if the grocery stores run out of food? And when it came to gifts, gifts were lovely to receive, but probably best not to use 
in case you really needed it down the line. She loved scented candles, loved them like nothing else. And so it was easy. What do we get, Grandma? Buy her a candle. But the same thing would happen every time. She would unwrap the gift. She would fuss over the gift, how wonderful it was, how thoughtful it was. And then a moment later, she would take it and place it up on the shelf beside a whole other row of candles. And I'd say, Grandma, aren't you going to like that? Like, I bought it for you. Oh, we'll just save it for another time. The ape missing an apest is like that. We have these gifts that Christ has given us in the church, but we keep putting it up on the shelf. And as a Presbyterian, I was reading John Calvin's teaching on this passage this week, and my heart sunk a little further, knowing that Calvin, and full disclosure, I love Calvin, so much so outside if you see a little red Fiat, you'll see a John Calvin bumper sticker. That's my car. I haven't seen another bumper sticker like that in Vancouver yet, but there's still time. What Calvin taught on this was fascinating. He said that the ape, apostolic gifts, prophetic gifts, evangelistic gifts, they were just for the early church, right? And this is, this is a, the 16th century when he was writing. He said, no, 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 that was just to establish a church. That's all done. Now all we need is basically the maintenance of the church. We need pastors, shepherds, and we need teachers. But it makes sense. We love the Reformation. We talk a lot about the Reformation. But really, that was not whether you were a Christian. It was what kind of Christian were you, Right? Because by the time Calvin wrote, everyone was born nominally Christian, right? They were born within the earshot of bells, that the, the sacramental system, what my colleague Daryl Guter calls the salvation management system of the church, right? Led people from birth through death under the care of the church. And so this sense in which we might actually need an apostolic gifting, establishing new communities, that we might actually be called to be prophetic, well, wait for a moment. If the king was also the head of the church and divinely appointed, best not to speak up too much. The evangelistic gift, well, who's to tell the gospel to? Everyone's kind of Christian, aren't they? If they went to mass once a year, they were considered in good standing. It's only in the age of missions and the centuries that follow, and now in our post-Christian West, that we're really feeling this desire to claim back the gifts that Christ has promised that he's given to you and to me. But you might be sitting here to say, okay, Ross, okay, I get it, unity, diversity, but for what purpose? For what end? The Bible tells us, keep reading with me. The purpose is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That's us, friends until all of us come to the unity of the faith, there's that word, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. You see, God gives unity to us alongside diversity for a purpose, maturity, going deeper with God, what our tradition would call holiness or sanctification, that we learn to love the Lord Jesus in new ways as we go deeper and deeper with him. You know, just recently, my teenage daughter has been studying for her L test. For those of you with little ones, that is a whole experience of hellish horror I don't wish on you, but it's coming <laughs> one day. 
She did get her L, so be careful in the streets of Vancouver, friends. But over these last several months, as she was taking you know, the ICBC online test, is that really fair? It feels like cheating. They give all the answers away. In any case, she's taking that online. What I noticed was my little girl, who's now a teenager, and I just sense that over the years, I've been driving her everywhere, right? To like sports, to arts, to friends, now to work. And she could care less about what I was doing. There I am shifting gears, you know, shoulder checking, all that kind of stuff. But as she's been learning the rhythms of being a driver, I've watched as she started to pay attention, to ask questions, to imagine herself doing what she sees me doing. In some ways, there's a maturing in that, right? As Christians, we, maybe we don't pay attention, we pray attention to what God is doing in the world around us. We look for those who are more mature doing what we feel called to do. We learn the rhythms, the unforced rhythms of God's grace, to borrow a line from Eugene Peterson. And we start to take on that experience that others have done so before us. This is what maturity looks like. But maturity not in a way that squeezes out our childlike wonder of who God has made us to be. No, maturity looks a little bit like years ago when I uh, heard Baxter Kruger speak. He's a great theologian from the States, quite unknown by many. His most famous book was piggybacking off the book, now movie, The Shack. You know that one? He did a theological interpretation of it called The Shack Revisited. And years ago in a small group here in Vancouver, we were out together, and uh, he was sharing with me a story from years earlier when he was uh, in his home watching Sunday football, newspaper open, just having a very relaxing Sunday afternoon, when out of the corner of his eye, all of a sudden, he saw a ninja approaching, a ninja approaching. It was his son dressed up in a ninja costume, like six years old or something like that, and Baxter told me, he said, oh, I knew my part at this point, and it was to reveal nothing, just to keep the newspaper up, to keep watching the football on TV, because he knew what was going to happen. Sure enough, in about two seconds, the ninja jumped, landed on his dad, the newspaper went flying, they rolled off the couch onto the floor, laughing and giggling and tickling and teasing each other, and then... Baxter said, whoa, he thought, something's weird here, something's different. There wasn't one ninja, there was two. I thought, what, what is going on here? Two little kids in their ninja costumes, right? And I thought, oh, it must be the neighbor's kid that my son has invited over to play. And so they wrestle for a little bit, and then kids being kids, they get bored and they run off to another room. So Baxter told me, he said, I'm sitting there, newspapers strewn everywhere, sports still going, and he said, it was like the Holy Spirit put a ticker tape across my forehead saying, wait a minute, pay attention. That was important. So he sat there and he reflected on what had just happened. And he thought, right. He thought, if my son's friend had walked past the living room and saw his friend's dad reading the newspaper and watching football, he would never in a million years run in and jump on him. That would just be odd, like socially wrong, right? So why did he do it? Because his son said, there's my dad. He loves to play. Come with me 
and join in. Friends, because of who Jesus is, as the Son of God, we have been grafted onto Israel. The claims of the gospel are for us and for the whole world. Maturity in Christ is at our fingertips, participating in the joy-filled life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us pray.